This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. I'm sure you're familiar with that section from Matthew. That's Matthew's version of the Christmas story, a much shortened version, much shorter than Luke. But Mark wanted to center on the main thing. The main thing is that our Lord's birth represents the fact is that God is with us. Now, what you may not be too familiar with is the background of this particular prophecy. If you were listening, he said that uh, this was all according to the words of the prophet, and the particular prophet that he had in mind is the prophet Isaiah. And so I'd like to have you turn back to that prophecy in, in the seventh chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 7. Whenever I announce an Old Testament text, I always hear the spines on your Bibles break. The dead flowers flutter out and the pictures of your grandchildren. This is a portion of the Bible that most of us don't read a great deal. But it's a part of uh, what the apostles called inspired scripture. It was the only Bible which our Lord and his apostles had. And uh, one that we need to take seriously. We jump back in time uh, about 800 years. 734 years to be exact. The king of uh, Judea is not Herod as it was in Jesus' day, but a man by the name of Ahaz. He was a young man, about 21 years of age, arrogant, wealthy, powerful, and uh, very ungodly. Uh, the best modern, modern counterpart that I can think of Ahaz is Idi Amin, kind of petty tyrant in a very small country. He made up his own religion. We're told that... Uh, Ahaz walked in the sins of the uh, kings of Israel. Israel, you know, was the little land just to the north of Judah. About 200 years before this prophecy was written, the ten tribes in the north seceded from the tribes in the south, and they formed their own nation, and they called themselves Israel, and left little Judah and, and Benjamin to form the uh, nation to the, to the south that we call, call Judah. All of the kings of the north were wicked. They all walked after what the prophets call the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, simply made up his own religion. Took all the religions of the people around and he made a composite religion and worshipped all the Baals, the Ashtaroth, the gods of uh, the Edomites, the Arameans. And Ahaz was just like uh, Jeroboam. He made up his own religion. He brought in the Baals. He brought in the pagan nature, orgiastic uh, worship of the Canaanites. He brought in the Edomite gods. He sacrificed his own son uh, down in the valley of Hinnom. Wretched little man. His nemesis was Isaiah, the prophet, who wrote this book. 
he was the court chaplain had access to Ahaz. It was impossible to dislodge him because he had been the chaplain to uh, Ahaz's grandfather, Uzziah, and his father, Jotham. He was a fixture in the court. Ahaz could do nothing about, uh, about Isaiah. Isaiah came and, and went with impunity, and Ahaz hated him because he always spoke to him the word of God. It's a hard time for Israel. At the very time this uh, particular prophecy was written, there were thousands of troops surrounding the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem was under siege by the Syrians and uh, their own countrymen, former countrymen, their own brothers, the people of Israel to the north. The reason was because of what was happening off to the east. A man by the name of Tiglath-Pileser III came to the throne of Assyria. The Bible calls him Pull. You can see why. They didn't like to string out that long name. He was the king of, of Assyria, and he thought he was a god. And uh, he thought the only thing befitting a god was world conquest, and so he began to march to the west. It was his plan to conquer the entire Middle East, and he was doing it. And little Syria off to the north and, and, and little Israel, didn't, they didn't have the army to hold off the Assyrian, and so they formed an alliance. And they tried to get Ahaz and the, king, and, and the kingdom of Judah to come into that alliance with them. And Isaiah said, don't do it, don't do it. Let God be your protector. Don't, don't turn to an alliance with men. Let God take care of you. Ahaz wouldn't do it. He formed an alliance with, with Assyria. He sold out to Tiglath-Pileser and to the Assyrians because he thought that therein lay his, uh, his protection. And in order to try to force Ahaz into an alliance, the armies of Israel and Syria marched south and they surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And when we pick up the story, that's what had happened. We're told in chapter 7, verse 1, that Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, was king of Judah. King Rezin of Aram, that's Syria, they spoke Aramaic, and so the country was called, is called Aram in the Old Testament, but it's modern-day Syria. Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel. Pekah was the king of the northern uh, nation of Israel. Marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they couldn't overpower it. They besieged the city, and the siege went on for weeks and weeks, but they, they couldn't break through the walls. And the house of David, that is the dynasty of David, the descendants of David, the royal family in Jerusalem, were told, Syria has allied itself with Ephraim. Ephraim was the largest tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel, and so very often Israel is called Ephraim. So whenever this name occurs in the Old Testament, think Israel. Syria, or Aram, has allied itself with Israel. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go, you and your son, Shir Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. Uh, there's a little stream that begins up in the top of Mount Moriah and flows down on the west side of the Temple Mound. And it was their water supply, the only water supply that they had while they were under siege. And Ahaz went up to the aqueduct to check on the condition of the water because there's no way to get out of the walls to find water. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go, go up and meet Ahaz and take your little boy. So Isaiah took his little boy, Shir Jashub, who was just a little tyke about that time, took him by the hand, and they made their way up the side of Mount Moriah, up to the top of the hill where Ahaz was. 
Isaiah had two sons. One was named Shear Jashub. The other was named Maher Shalal Hashbaz. What a name to saddle a kid with. That's worse than calling him Sue. Imagine how time-consuming it would be to go to the nursery and and tell the nursery attendant the name of your child, and she'd have to get a piece of uh, tape about that long to write it on. That was his name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Isaiah wasn't making fun of the little boy. Both of those children, Shir Jashub and Maher Shalal Hashbaz, were intended to be signs to Israel. Their names represented a truth that God wanted Israel to remember. Shir Jashub means a remnant will, will return. There will always be a people through whom Messiah will come. And Maher Shalal Hashbaz means uh, hasty to the spoil. Uh, the idea is come and get it. It was a word addressed to the Assyrians to come and, and, uh, and take away Judah's uh, enemies. Uh, this, is, this is announced to the house of David, and this is important because all of it has to do with the continuance of David's line. You remember last summer we talked about 2 Samuel 7 and this great promise that was given to David that through him the Messiah would come. David was so excited when he found out that he was part of this historic line that, that began all the way back in the, in the, after the, the fall of man and, and, and through whom the Savior of, of the human race would come. David said that, that I should be in this line, in the charter that was given to humanity. But back in, in, in the story of the fall, we're told that immediately after the man fell and dragged the human race with him. God said, it's all right, because I'm going to set things right. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And uh, this, this promise continued for years and years. To the time of David, and then David was assured that, that the Savior of the human race would come through his line. And he passed this on to his, his son, Solomon And Solomon passed this on to his son. And all the prophets reminded the house of David that one of these days the Savior would, would come through, through that house. These little boys were reminders to the house of, of David that this promise was still true. God was good to his word. And he, he says to Ahaz, Be careful. I'm reading verse 9. Be careful. Keep calm and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the, and the son of, of Remaliah. uses the same idiom that we use. They're just smoke, that's all. There's no fire. They're like smoldering embers. Aram, Ephraim, and, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let's tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabiel king over it. Uh, the word tabio means good for nothing. It's probably not a proper name. He's saying, we're gonna, we'll just get someone who will be our puppet, a political hack, and we'll put him over the nation of Judah, and then we can do as we please with this nation. We can use their wealth. We can use their armament to fight against, against uh, Syria. Isaiah says in verse 7, this is what the sovereign Lord says, it'll never happen. It will not take place. It will not happen for the head of Aram is Damascus. Uh, Damascus was the capital city of Syria, still is today. And the head of Damascus is only Rezin. In other words, the head of that nation that you're, that, that's thrown so much dread into your hearts is just a man. That's all. He puts his pants on one leg at a time, just like any other man does. He's just a man. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. 
The head of Ephraim is Samaria. That was the capital city of Israel. And the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son, that is Pekah. He's just a, just a man. If you do not stand fast in your faith, you will not stand at all. Interesting prediction here. You know, here Ahaz and, and Isaiah look down over the walls and they see thousands of people around them. And, and they've been shut up in the city for some time. And they're beginning to run out of food and they're beginning to run out of water. And, and Pekah and, and Rezin, the two kings, were saying, we're going to assault the city. We're going to tear down the walls. We're going to put our own king in place of Ahaz. And we will rule Judah. And Isaiah says, it'll never happen. Within 65 years, these two kings that you, you fear, and specifically thinking of Ephraim and Israel and Samaria, will cease to be a people. And do you know that precisely 65 years after this prophecy was, was delivered, that's, that's exactly what happened. Isaiah was speaking in 734 B.C. In 680, which is exactly 65 years after this date, the Assyrians deported the rest of the population of Samaria and Ephraim and scattered them all over the Middle East, and they were lost. These are the ten lost tribes. No one knows where they are anymore. They're gone. They ceased to be a people. So Isaiah says, these people are not a threat. Don't appeal to Assyria. Trust God. He's going to take care of you. In 65 years, these people that you fear won't even exist. They won't even be a people any longer. Why don't you trust God instead of your statecraft and, and your, own, your own military and your own, own devices? Well, as you know, when, when these prophets predicted uh, something in the, in the far future, there, there had to be some near prediction in order to authenticate their authority as an apostle. What good would it be to Ahaz to say, now, uh, 65 years from now, these people that you fear will not be a threat? What might happen in the 65 intervening years? Perhaps uh, the nation would be devastated, and Ahaz himself would be, would be assassinated. What, what, what's going to happen? Why is this such good news? Well, I, I, Isaiah says to Ahaz in verse 11, Ask the Lord your God for a sign whether in the deepest, deepest depths or in the highest heights. Give, ask him to give you some sign that he's going to take care of you, that he's going to, he's going to meet your needs. But Ahad, Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Sounds very pious. He's actually quoting the words of Scripture, passage back in Deuteronomy, same words that our Lord quotes to Satan when... When tempted, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But Ahaz here is not speaking as a believer. He's speaking as a true unbeliever. He didn't want to know a sign from God. That was the last thing he wanted. He'd already made up his mind. As a matter of fact, he'd already started in motion the, the political process that would set up an alliance between Judah and, and Assyria. He didn't want a sign from God. He didn't want to hear from God. He had his own plans. Isaiah says, Hear now, you house of God, and, and again, see, he, or house of David, he's speaking to David's line, to the royal family, those in this historic line that would produce the Messiah, the one who would, who would save the world. Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The you here is plural and refers to the house of David, to Ahaz, to Hezekiah his son, and all of the other sons that came from 
the spring from Ahaz's loins and the, the, the line that eventually culminated in the coming of Christ. The Lord will give the house of David a sign. And here's the sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And you will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and, and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father, that is on David's house, a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. And in that day the Lord will whistle for flies from the distant streams of Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria and so forth. I'm not going to read the rest of the passage, but it, it describes the steady decline socially and economically of the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, I, I say, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, Isaiah. What is going on here? You, you predict that within 65 years, the, the people that the kingdom of Judah fear will no longer be a people. All right, that's good news. And then you predict the birth of a child who will be born of a virgin, and everyone knows that that's Jesus. And that doesn't happen for 734 years. Why is that good news to Ahaz? What's going on here? Well, let me tell you, what follows is not easy. Not, not all of the, of the Bible is easy to understand. But I'm going to tell you what I think is happening here. Now, stick with me. It, 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 you know, it may get a little dull, but stick with me. Don't go to sleep for about five minutes while I explain what I think is going on. And then we'll get to something that's a little bit more interesting. Okay? Don't go to sleep. Remember, this is directed to the house of David, the dynasty of David, through which line the Lord Jesus would come. So we have to keep that in mind. And number two, this sign is offered to Ahaz as a sign that the 65-year prediction will come true. So it has to be something that occurs within Ahaz's lifetime to have any meaning at all. Now, he says, this is the sign. The virgin will conceive. She's unnamed. She's unknown. We don't know who she is. Some virgin will conceive. Except the word that's translated virgin here in Hebrew, does not mean a young woman who has had no sexual experience. That's what our word means. Virginity indicates someone who's had no sexual experience. This, and, and there is a Hebrew word that signifies virginity in that sense. It's the Hebrew word betulah. And it's used in the Old Testament and in other literature to refer to someone who possesses virginity in the, in the terms in which we understand virginity. This is a different word. It's not that word. It's the word Alma, which simply means a young maiden of marriageable age. She may or may not be a virgin. She probably would be because in that culture, unmarried women normally had no sexual experience, and so she could be referred to as a virgin. But that's not in the meaning of the term. you understand? The word Alma, which is the word here translated virgin, simply means a young woman. And it's used that way throughout the Old Testament and other literature. A young maiden. And unfortunately, we don't have an English word to indicate that idea. There is an old English word, maid, 
that meant a young woman of marriageable age. And Luther, when he came to this point in his Bible, used the German word that is the counterpart of that old English word made. He understood that, it, that, that Isaiah's prediction is not that this will be a virgin per se, simply some young woman who would have a child. The child is called Emmanuel. He's given that name. Because what he does will in some significant way indicate the presence of God with the human race. Third, we're told that before he knows enough to choose good and evil, these two kings that you dread will be gone. They'll be devastated. Now, normally in ancient Israel, when a child reached the age of 12 or thereabouts, somewhere between 12 and 15, he was considered to have reached the age of majority. His conscience had developed. He knew the difference between right and wrong. That's why even today, you know, most Jewish uh, young men celebrate their bar mitzvah at age 12. That goes way back. So sometime between 12, 15, 14, something like that, when a, when a child reached the age of majority, he was said to know the difference between, between good and evil. Now notice what Isaiah says. Before this child knows the difference between good and evil, these two kings will be history. So that means within 12 years, something has to happen to rid Judah of, 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 these, of these kings, Syria and Israel. Uh, but unfortunately, the prophecy doesn't stop there. It goes on. After he knows the difference between good and evil, we're told, he's going to eat curds and honey. And let me tell you, there is nothing good about curds and honey. That is not good food. I've heard some commentators say that's luxury food. That is not luxury food. If you read on through the rest of the chapter, and I won't take time to do so, as Isaiah describes the terrible things that will happen to the southern kingdom, one of the things he says will happen, clumped together with all of these disasters that will accumulate, is the fact that people would eat curds and honey. You know what curd is? That's the food of nomads. They take goat skins and they put milk in the skin, and they let it sour, and they shake it up, and that's curds. And honey is simply wild honey. You had to scavenge. You had to hunt for it to find it. In other words, times are going to be tough, he says. But uh, the prophecy doesn't end there. Let's read on. Chapter 8. The Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen, Mahashal al-Hashbaz. And then we have the story of this second son who is a sign. And then in verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again, Because this people, referring to the people up in the north, Israel, has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the river. He's thinking symbolically of Assyria. The king of Assyria with all of his pomp, he said, it's as though the Euphrates River reaches flood tide and begins to inundate all of the nations around it, floods through Syria and through Israel. It will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep on into Judah, which is where Jerusalem was, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Its overspread wings will cover the breadth of your land. Oh, Emmanuel, he cries out to this young child who is to be born of the virgin, who is the prince of the land. And he says, oh, Emmanuel, it's your land that's being flooded. Do something. And the response comes in verse 9. Raise the war cry, you nations that, that are 
that stand against Judah and be scattered. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, for it will not stand. For Emmanuel, God is with us, Emmanuel. And I say, what? what? What's going on here? What child is this? Born in the last part of the 8th century B.C., who, before he's 12, will see these two kings scattered and destroyed. And after he's 12, we'll see this devastation of, of the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, I'll tell you who I think it was. I think it was Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the son of Ahaz, born of a, of a virtually unknown young woman. We know her name. Her name is, is, is Abijah, or Abi, as she's called for short in the Old Testament. She was taken out of the harem by Ahaz, and she did conceive, and she did bear a son. And he was, in a very significant way, a symbol of God's presence in Judah. When that child was 12 years of age, which would be 722 B.C., the Assyrian reached the borders of Syria, swept through that nation, destroyed those people, scattered them all over the ancient world, swept on into Israel destroyed the city of Samaria, deported most of their of the inhabitants of that city, left some that Ezra Hedden in 680 scattered the, the 65 years that, that Isaiah talked about previously. This is in 722, 12 years after this prophecy was uttered. Do you see? Before this child knows the difference between good and evil, these two kings you fear will be history. When Hezekiah was 12 years of age, Sennacherib and Sargon scattered those, uh, those people all over the world, and they just kept right on coming. And for the years that followed, from 722 until 701, the southern kingdom of Judah was subject to the, to the empire of Assyria, and they had hard times, the likes of which they had never seen before. Their economy was destroyed. Their military was destroyed. They, they were heavily taxed by the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the most ruthless, cruel, bloody people in the history of the world. Archaeologists digging in the city of Lachish over on the border at, at, at Judean levels, the levels that we're talking about, 8th century levels, have discovered pits containing the bodies of Jewish soldiers, as many as 1,200 of them. And on the top of these skeletons, they find layers of pig bones. And you know exactly what, what the Assyrians were doing. They were desecrating the graves of these brave young men that had been destroyed, killed, fighting for their, for their country. And finally, a, a king by the name of Sennacherib, he's Tiglath-Pileser's great-great-grandson, writes in his history books, and, and if you want to read it, you can go to the London Museum in London and you'll actually find his chronicles of his encounter with Hezekiah. He said, I shut up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. Isaiah says of this time that Israel, uh, Judah, looked like, a, like Jerusalem, looked like a, like a watchman's hut in the middle of a cucumber field. Assyria had demolished every city in Judah. There was not one house standing. The people were living in caves and in tents. 
And Sennacherib and his hundreds of thousands of Assyrian soldiers besieged the city of Jerusalem. And Sennacherib said, Sennacherib said, it's all over. I've shut up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. And he sent his right-hand man, the Rabshakeh, to announce to the city of Jerusalem that they better capitulate. They better open their gates and let the Assyrians in. Because once they broke through, they would show no mercy. The uh, Jews up on the wall said, please don't speak in Hebrew, speak in Aramaic, because you're dismaying the people. They did it deliberately. They wanted the whole city to panic. They were starving. They were dying of thirst. There was no way out. They had no army. Sennacherib said, you give me 2,000 men to put on chariots, and I'll give you the chariots. And they couldn't find 2,000 fighting men in the city of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah stood on those walls, and he looked down there at the Assyrian army, and he knew it was all over. He had no defense system. He had no army. He had no money to buy off the Assyrians. He didn't have a thing. And he took the letter that the king of Assyria had sent, detailing the terms of their surrender. He took that letter up to his room, and he put it on the bed, and he got down on his knees, and he said, God... What are you going to do about that? You said that you're going to preserve this people. We're going to endure to the end until the Messiah comes. Your reputation is at stake. You promised. What are you going to do about that? And the Lord said through the prophet Hezekiah, there will not be one arrow to fly into this city. Not one. Hezekiah went to sleep at night. He woke up the next morning. It was deathly quiet outside. He looked over the walls, and he saw the Assyrian army, those that were left, burying their dead. During the night, a plague had swept through the, uh, through the army, and 185,000 fighting men died in one night. We not only know that from Scripture, from Isaiah 36 through 38, in the parallel passage in Second Chronicles, we uh, in Second Kings, we know that from Assyrian records, and they don't normally talk about their defeats; they just talk about their victories. A hundred and eighty-five thousand soldiers died. They were out there burying them and gathering up their war machines and trying to get away before the small motley army that Hezekiah head came out of the walls and cut them into pieces. And they went back to Assyria, totally defeated, embarrassed. And some months later, Sennacherib, the king, was uh, worshiping in the temple of, of Merdok, and his two sons assassinated him. And that was the end of Assyria. They were never a dominant power again after that. It was over. Now, you, you see, Hezekiah was a sign of what it means to have God with us. From the very beginning of human history, God assured the human race that he wanted to be with us. <laughs> he walked with Adam. He walked with Enoch. He walked with Moses in, in Exodus 3, where Moses was out in the, in the desert. He hadn't heard anything from God for 40 years and, and saw a burning bush. God spoke to him out of the bush, and he told Moses that he was to go back to Egypt to deliver his people. And Moses said, not me. I'm a convicted murderer. I'm a, I'm a wanted felon. I'm not going back to Egypt. God said, I'll be with you. 
That's all he said. I'll be with you. Moses said, well, that's nice, but who are you? He hadn't heard from God for 40 years. No one had. And God said, I am. That's who I am. I'm the one who's with you. I'm the one who will give you the strength and the wisdom and the power and the ability to do what I've called you to do. And from that time on, the name of God in Israel is He is. That's what the name Yahweh, or we say Jehovah sometimes. That's a, that's a word that's formed from the Hebrew verb, the second, third person singular form of the verb to be. He is. Yehyah in Hebrew. Or Yahweh, we say. Or Jehovah. He is. You want to know who God is? He is the one who's with us, who's promised to give us everything that we need. And all along the line, there were intimations of what God had in mind ultimately. There was the cloud that represented the presence of God in their midst. And there are people like Hezekiah, who is not God, he was just a man like us. But he represented in a symbolic way the presence of God among his people and what God would do if we would just recognize that he wants to be with us. And as the story unfolded, the prophets began to realize that there's more to this than meets the eye. It's not merely that God is with us symbolically in the person of someone like Hezekiah. There's more to this. One of the prophets said, this, this one who's in the line of David who will come to save us, he's from of old. His goings forth are from old. His, his origins are shrouded in mystery. Oh, he'll be born in, in Bethlehem, but that's not the end of the story. That's not where he started. He began before he began. And, and the people read the prophets, and they said, what, what do you mean? And then you come to another prophet, Zechariah. And Zechariah says, Come, Zion, escape you who live in, in the daughter of, of Babylon. He, he's writing to people that have been exiled. The southern kingdom of Judah eventually was taken into exile by the Babylonians. And Zechariah, one of the last prophets to write, wrote, from the standpoint of those that are in Babylon, calling them back into the land to rebuild the temple and start worshiping again in Jerusalem and rebuild the walls of the city. And he says, Come, escape you who live in the daughter of, of Babylon, for this is what the Lord Almighty says. After he has honored me and has sent me against the nations that have plundered your, you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye, I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will be plundered, then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. You have to read that again understand what he's saying. He says, the Lord Almighty says, and then someone else begins to speak. Someone who's called God Almighty, but who refers to his God who is God Almighty. So here's a God who has a God. And he says, be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. And, and people start reading the prophets and they realize there's something more than what we thought. It's not only a man who comes to, to symbolize or represent what, what, what it means to have God with us, but it's God himself in human flesh who has a miraculous origin. You see, they, they realize that these that, that what you have in the Old Testament are pictures, snapshots. 
History is intended to picture some greater reality. The prediction of the son who came, Hezekiah, is a picture of, of someone far greater who's coming, who will actually be God with us, who will be born of a virgin. They begin to realize that there's something else going on here. And as a matter of fact, in the 4th century, a group of Jews in the city of Alexandria sat down to translate the, the Old Testament into Greek. Uh, by this time, the Greeks had conquered the, the, the Eastern world, and everybody spoke Greek, and so they needed a, a Bible in the vernacular. So, so they took the Hebrew Bible, and they translated it into Greek for everyone, and that's what we call the Septuagint version, because there were supposedly 70 men who, who did the work, and, and, and Septuaginta is a Greek word for, for 70, and that's why they call it the Septuagint. These men were writing in Greek. And when they came to this passage in Isaiah 7, and they came to the word virgin, they didn't use the Greek word for a young maiden. They could have. They didn't. They used the Greek word parthenos, which means one, one who possesses virginity. You've heard of the Parthenon in Athens? Same word. The Parthenon was the house of the virgin Athena. And, and, and the word means virgin. One without sexual experience. One who's never known a man. They translated this Hebrew term with that word because they knew that there was something more than what, what Isaiah had originally uttered and what people had read for hundreds of years in this page. There's something more. And then when Matthew begins to construct his, his story from the data that he had, he, he goes back to Isaiah and he quotes not the Hebrew Old Testament, but the Septuagint. That Greek version. Behold, he says, a young woman will be with child. Uh, excuse me, a virgin will conceive and will be with child. And he shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means, God with us. This is for real. This is not the symbol. This is a real thing. The, the, the infinite, as George MacDonald says, became infinitesimal. He became an infant. He became a child. This was God with us, for real. That's what the Christmas story is all about. That's why Matthew centers on this. It's the real thing. He doesn't come to, to save us in some partial sense in which, uh, as, as Hezekiah did, he came to save us from sin, to go to the cross, to deliver us in a final and ultimate sense so there would be nothing between us and God and we can walk with God in fellowship with him forever. See? He's here. That's the real thing. That's what the story is all about. Despite all the other stuff that you see out there, the commercialization of Christmas. See, this is the real thing. Carol and I were talking to a woman a couple of weeks ago, and she was telling us about all the choirs and handwork that she's doing. She's so busy, busy, busy this Christmas season. She said, you know, that's what it's all about. Except this religious stuff. And her heart just really went out to her because the religious stuff is the real thing. This other stuff is not. It's sham. It's not the real thing. The problem, you see, is that we're being sold down the river by, by the world. That the real thing is uh, Christmas trees and families around the Christmas trees and, and giving gifts and uh, hanging uh, displays and decorations, buying things for one another, and there's nothing wrong with any of that. But we're, we're sidetracked just enough that we miss the real thing, which is the fact 
that God now is with us for real. You know why so many people are depressed during the holiday season? Because they think all of this stuff is the real thing. Now, there's nothing wrong with this stuff. I mean, as long as it's uh, as we're good stewards of God's money, and we're wise in what we do and, and how we spend our time. But you'll never find the real thing there. It'll never satisfy. Never. And correspondingly, you can have none of this stuff. Some of you may not have a husband to sit next to you and in, 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 in the children around the, the Christmas tree this uh, Christmas. Or if he is there, you may wish that he weren't. We all have such un, unrealistic expectations for our mates, for our children. We envision in our mind that, that Christmas is going to be a warm and wonderful time, and it, and, it, and it always eludes us. The satisfaction, the joy eludes us because we're centering on the wrong thing instead of the real thing. The real thing is that no matter what you have or don't have, God is with you. See? Maybe you don't have a husband this Christmas. Maybe you don't have a wife. Maybe your children have left the nest. And, and maybe there's, uh, there's heartache because there's a, an alienation and separation between you and your, and your parents. Or maybe you don't have the money this year to, to buy things for your children that you'd like to buy. Or maybe you don't have a job this Christmas, and that's hard. But I'll tell you what you do have. You have the real thing. You have God with you in the person of Jesus Christ. And he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Jeannie Parsons told the greatest story here just uh, the other day at the Young Life uh, party. Uh, three little boys that were uh, they went into a, a toy store. And they were told they could have any toy that they wanted. They just had five minutes to gather gather it up. So these two of these little boys went running down the aisles, and you know how kids are. They were just grabbing everything they, they, they could find, and, and then they'd see something a little better, so they'd drop that arm load, and they'd grab something else. And, and at the end of the five minutes, the bell rang, and, and uh, the little boys virtually had nothing, and what they had they didn't want because they'd seen something better someplace else. At the end of it all, the third little boy went over to the toy maker and, and threw his arms around him, and he said, I'm going to take you home. <laughs> now, that's wisdom. You and I run around you know, trying to accumulate our toys, find something that will satisfy us. What, what God wants us to know is that the, the maker of all things is with us. We need to take him home. Let's pray. Lord, like the uh, people that we've been reading about, our, our hearts have hungered for the real thing. We know that, that somehow behind the symbols there's a greater reality. And we know the same thing about these holiday seasons, that beyond the, the things that we do, the, the special events of this holiday period, there, there is something more, something greater, something more precious, something more valuable and worthwhile. Help us to keep our thinking straight, keep us from, from getting off-center, and help us to center ourselves upon you, your coming, your presence with us, both now and for eternity. We thank you. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.